Those of you who are here, fantastic crowd again. Those of you in our online campus, Nana and Dallas, good morning to you. I'm so glad you guys are here. It's a privilege to be able to preach the Word of God to you and to explicate a wonderful, wonderful text, Deuteronomy chapter 5. I'm going to jump right in. Laura Schlesinger, Dr. Laura, has been a family therapist and a radio personality for years, a couple of years ago, actually more than a couple she did a presentation on a radio program in which she argued for a biblical sexual morality. That is one man, one woman in a committed married relationship for life. She got a lot of pushback against uh, this presentation, including an anonymous letter that's been circulated online now for probably 15 years. Let me just give you an excerpt or two from this letter. And I'm going to summarize even a few of it, uh, the points just to let you know what was uh, being argued. So here we go. Dear Dr. Laura, thank you for doing so much to educate people regarding God's law. I do need some advice from you, however, regarding some of the elements of God's law and how to follow them. One, I would like to sell my daughter into slavery as sanctioned in Exodus 21 and verse 7. In this day and age, what do you think would be a fair price for her? Two, Leviticus 21 and verse 20 states that I may not approach the altar of God if I have a de defect in my sight. I have to admit that I wear reading glasses. Does my vision have to be 20-20 or is there some wiggle room here? Number three, most of my male friends get their hair trimmed, including the hair around their temples. Even though this is expressly forbidden in Leviticus 19.27, how should they die? And number four, I know from Leviticus... Don't let this bother you too much. I know from Leviticus 11, 6 to 8, that touching the skin of a dead pig makes me unclean. May I still play football if I wear gloves? Thank you again for reminding us that God's Word is eternal and unchanging. Your adoring fan, Anonymous. So Anonymous is being sarcastic, and uh, obviously Anonymous doesn't agree with biblical sexual ethics. And so what Anonymous is trying to do is to suggest, look, we've all changed the Scripture. We all blow off Scriptures we don't like, and therefore, I can blow off these Scriptures as well. Maybe behind what Anonymous is saying is an even deeper issue, and that is one that's typically called antinomianism. That is, the sense that there's something inherently wrong with rules and law. And I've made the case multiple times from this pulpit that Americans are kind of have a juvenile uh, interest in breaking the rules and coloring outside the law, uh, lines and so forth. But I want to say there's something to these questions. And for many of us, if we don't get a good handle on questions like this, here's what's going to happen. People are going to bully you in your faith, and you're not going to be able to answer. And seeds of doubt will be sown in your mind. As a matter of fact, questions like these, if you don't have a good response to them, I mean for yourself, not just for other people, might lead you to begin to believe things that aren't true. And in some extreme cases, they could cost you your faith. So it really matters that we learn how to read the Scriptures. It especially matters in Deuteronomy because we're entering Moses' second speech. Remember, Deuteronomy is three sermons or three speeches. The second speech is 24 chapters of legal texts. Yes. And if you don't know how to read legal texts, 
The next 24 chapters are going to be really, really hard on you. So today we're going to learn how does Jesus teach us to read these laws. Let me just start by affirming the rule of law is one of the greatest political blessings humans have ever experienced. This pushes back against America's juvenile interest in sort of breaking all the rules. Rule of law protects us from arbitrary treatment. It limits the power of government. It provides a pathway to dignity and it gets, sets us free within certain boundaries that are safe for us. Put it this way, and this is your first fill in the blank by the way. Good laws form the guardrails in the road of life. And I want to suggest when you tear down guardrails, people don't get happier and they don't get safer. Life gets far more dangerous. And so when the New Testament speaks about the Old Testament, you know what it says? When the New Testament speaks about the laws of the Old Testament, it says the following. The Old Testament was written for North Boulevard. So when we read Deuteronomy, we're not reading somebody else's mail. It was written for us. Second, the New Testament teaches us that Jesus did not abolish the law. He fills it full of meaning. So it still has an abiding presence. In fact, he says, till heaven and earth disappear. Not a word, not even a dot on an I will be taken away from this law. The law, Paul says, it is holy, it is just, and it is good. And in Psalm 119, we're taught that we should delight in the law. So how can we read laws about cutting your sideburns, selling your daughter into slavery, handling a football, and still say, oh, that's really awesome. Those are the best laws ever written. I'm about to show you. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, one of the sweetest texts in all the Scripture, very powerful text. I'm going to read through it. So Moses summoned all of Israel and said, hear Israel, the decrees and laws I declare in your hearing today, learn them and be sure to follow them. The Lord our God made a covenant with us at Horeb. So Moses is about to give the Ten Commandments and he just pauses. I want you to see this verse, verse 3. It was not with our ancestors that the Lord made this covenant, but with us, with all of us who are alive here today. Now, in a sense, that's not true. Forty years have passed since God did this, and all the adults are dead now. But Moses says, look, it might have been spoken to them, but it was spoken for you. And that's how we should read the Bible. It was written to the Corinthians, but it was written for North Boulevard. Let's keep going. The Lord spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. At that time, I stood between the Lord and you to declare to you the word of God because you were afraid of the fire and did not want to go up to the mountain. And he said, and here we are, this awesome, awesome text, the Ten Commandments. You ready? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations for those who love me and keep my commandments. I just want to pause and say this. Moses is not suggesting that God holds you responsible for your parents' sins. The Bible is really clear on that. But Moses is suggesting that when your parents sin, the effects of that sin can live on for generations. A father who is abusive to his children oftentimes curses his children with all sorts of emotional problems, and then they abuse their children, and then they abuse their children. It goes on for generations. And Moses is saying, that's what happens when we sin. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. I want you to think really hard about this, guys. 
when you take God's name in vain and say, oh my God, and you say it in the wrong context, or Jesus Christ in the wrong context. This text says God has a right to have his name honored and not desecrated like that. Observe the Sabbath day by keeping it holy as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day, it's a Sabbath day to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work, neither you nor your son nor daughter nor male nor female servant nor ox nor donkey or any of your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns so that your male and female servants may rest as you do. Remember, you were slaves in Egypt and that the Lord your God brought you in out of there with a mighty hand, an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. Honor your father and mother as the Lord your God has commanded you so you may live long and so it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. You shall not set your desire on your neighbor's house or land, his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. These are the commandments the Lord proclaimed in a loud voice to your whole assembly there on the mountain from out of the fire the cloud and the deep darkness and he added nothing more than he wrote these on two stone tablets and he gave them to me is that fast enough for you the ten commandments so ubiquitous so so present everywhere that they have now shaped so much of western civilization it's not too much to say that laws in Europe and in North America and in South America have been so fundamentally shaped by these Ten Commandments that we often don't even notice it. These Ten Commandments are beautiful because they form for us the very first Bill of Rights in human history. You know what we mean by Bill of Rights? So after the U.S. Constitution was written, it dawned on people like James Madison and others that though the government had rules in the Constitution, there was no rule protecting you from the power of the government. And so in 1791, legislators got together and said, let's write protections for the ordinary person so the government can't run over them. The first 10 amendments of the U.S. Constitution are called the Bill of Rights. And by the way, you know what the very first one is? Congress shall make no law establishing a religion or restricting the free exercise thereof. The very first amendment, the very first right that every human has is the right to go out at Nissan, to go to MTSU, to walk down to the city square, to go to Starbucks and to live your religion openly. That's your very first right. And it's not just a right you were given by the government, it's a right you were given by God. The government just acknowledges that. Long before our Bill of Rights, however, the Ten Commandments expressed the Bill of Rights. It's beautiful. Think about it. These Bill of Rights, this Bill of Rights, what it says is this. Because God created you, God has a right for your full allegiance. God has a right to stop you or expect you to stop worshiping any other God. He has a right to do this. God has a right for you to take his name with sacredness. It's his name. He has a right for you to respect it. How about the Sabbath day? God has a right for you to honor holy days. This was the transitional one, number three. God has a right for you to honor holy days, and he has the right for you to rest. You have a right to rest. Your kids have a right to rest. Your dog has a right to rest. Your goat has a right to rest. Everybody has a right to rest. Then he says, your parents, they have a right 
to get your respect. They have a right for your respect. Then he says, the next person has a right to life. You don't have a right to take that person's life. The next person has a right to his property. The next person has a right for the truth. The next person has a right to know that you're not going to steal his wife or his husband, her husband. The next person has a right to know that you're not sitting there secretly plotting how you're going to take all of their possessions. It's the first Bill of Rights in history, well over 3,000 years old. And it, it lives on. And I want you to notice that Jesus points out that the Ten Commandments are actually premised on two basic principles. One, you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Those are the first three. You love God enough that He's your only God. You love God enough that you honor His name. You love God enough that you honor holy days. And then two, you love your neighbor. You love, you love your neighbor enough not to kill him. You love your neighbor enough not to steal from him. You love your neighbor enough not to covet his stuff or lie to him. But it goes even further, and I want you to see this. In English, we don't have a plural or singular you. We just have you. The closest you get is in the South, where we have y'all if it's more than one of you, and you if it's one, or if you're on the Cumberland Plateau, it's you-ins if you're one. And what we mean by this, y'all is all of you, and you is one. Now, in the Hebrew language, they had y'all and you built into it. Here's what I want you to see. The Ten Commandments are not plural, they're singular. In other words, the command is not for the government. It's for you. It's a personal ethic. Now, that matters because we live in an age in which personal ethics are not regarded very highly, but public policy or so-called social justice, social justice is, is, is out the roof important to Americans. But the Ten Commandments reverse that. The Ten Commandments would want you to know that no social justice will ever work if people aren't living the right kinds of lives. And so these are personal ethics and not just social policy. The Ten Commands, God's way of ordering society so people live the right kind of life, respecting His rights and the rights of others. I want to finish our text, so let's go to verse 23. Moses is wrapping up now. He's reminding them, when you got the Ten Commandments, he says, y'all remember, I had to go up there and get it because you were terrified of God. So here's what he says. When you heard the voice out of the darkness, while the mountain was ablaze with fire, all the leaders of your tribes and elders came to me. And you said, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and his majesty. We've heard his voice from the fire. Today we've seen that a person can live even if God speaks with them. But now, why should we die? They were terrified of what they were seeing. They're at Mount Sinai. They see the smoke, the clouds, the fire. They hear the thunderous voice of God, and they're terrified. So they say to Moses, why don't you just go up there and get the commands for us? We'll just wait down here. Which, by the way, wasn't a bad plan, as you'll soon see. Why should we die? This great fire will consume us. And if we die, uh, and we will die if we hear the voice of the Lord our God any longer. For what mortal has ever heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the fire as we have and survived? Verse 27, go near and listen to all the Lord God says. Then tell us whatever the Lord God tells you. We will listen and obey. The Lord heard you when you spoke to me, and the Lord said, I've heard what this people said to you. Everything they said was good. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commandments always so that it might go well with them and their children forever. Go tell them to return to their tents, but you stay here with me 
So I may give you all the commands, decrees, and laws. You're to teach them to follow in the land I'm giving them to possess. Be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. And do not turn aside from the right to the left. Walk in obedience to all the Lord our God has commanded you so you may live long, prosper, and prolong your days in the land you will possess. Stop. Now, I want to talk about what's going on here. As I said earlier, there's a couple of issues we want to tackle. Here's the first one. We're entering 24 chapters of laws. Many of the laws will sound very strange to us. You don't have to be a challenger to the Scriptures to say, I don't understand some of these laws. It, it can be a very innocent question. At first glance, a lot of the laws really do look odd. The idea of selling your daughter as a slave? Like it's not just pagans who challenge that text. It's really hard to get your brain around what's happening there. But you also need to know that as the world increasingly becomes unbelieving, increasingly becomes um, resistant to the gospel, they're going to grab hold of things like this and smear it in the faces of your children and your, your face as well. And it's going to be harder and harder for us if we don't know how to read the Scripture. And I want to remind you of something. The very first sermon Jesus Christ gave in the New Testament, the very first sermon you remember what it was? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is a Sermon on the Mount. The very first sermon Jesus gave is a statement on how to read the Old Testament. He thought it was that important that his first sermon was, let me show you how you have to read the Old Testament. That's what we need to do. We need to learn how to read the Old Testament because we want to be able to rejoice in it. We want to perceive its goodness and its justice and its rightness. We want to be able to say, this is our book. In fact, you want to obey the Old Testament. It was written to them, but written for you. So how do we do it? Well, back in the summer, I did a lesson, a series of lessons. That at that time, we called This Is My Story. The fourth of those lessons, I went into some things that I'm just going to summarize today. But I invite you to go online. You can watch number four of the This Is My Story. It's easy to find on our website. But if you'll recall, I suggested that there are two ways to look at the Old Testament. And here they are. A precept is a general rule or a truth. It's a spiritual, timeless truth. The entire Old Testament is grounded in the eternal truths of God. Those truths never change. But the Old Testament also contains statutes. So a statute is a specific law that enforces for a specific time, a specific place, a temporary time and place, a greater precept. Here was the example I gave you. In Louisiana, you cannot break a dam. It's against the law. In Arizona, you have to break a dam. Those are two different statutes. They're opposite, in fact. But they have one premise. You know what the premise is? They have one spiritual truth. You, you can figure this out. The one spiritual truth they both share. You can't do something with water that will hurt your neighbor. If you break the dam in Louisiana, it'll flood your neighbor. You can't do that to them. If you build a dam in Arizona, it'll prevent your neighbor from getting water. You can't do that. The precept never changes. You have to treat your neighbor right. The statute changes from place to place. So what the Bible is going to teach us is this. Precepts are eternal. Statutes are local. So we're going to learn that things like eating shellfish was a local statute. You're not under that law anymore, but you are under the precept. And the precept was honor God with all you do, including your food. 
That doesn't change. There's an Old Testament law that says if you build a second story in your house, you have to put a railing up. I just want you to know you're not under that law, not the statute. But you are under the precept. What's the precept? You can't build a structure that you know your next door neighbor is going to fall off of and get hurt. The statute changes from place to place. The statutes, according to Paul, were nailed to the cross, Ephesians 2. But the eternal, timeless truths of God, they never change. They're always with us. In fact, the Hebrew writer puts it this way. He says that the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, but not the realities themselves. Statutes are shadows of spiritual realities. So, what do we do when we pick up the Old Testament? It's really important, guys. You've got to learn how to read the Old Testament. We're headed for hard days. I think in times past, if you don't mind my decanting for a second, in times past you could say, oh, the preacher will take care of all of that. I'm just going to be a good person. By the way, you are really good people. No question of that. You're actually the best people I know. But in hard times, you have to be able to understand how you got to your faith. You can't just say, I've got it. You have to be able to understand how you got there. So let me show you how Christians read the Old Testament. First, we start by uncovering what the Old Testament meant in its historical context. And it's just important to remember that a text can only mean what its author intended it to mean. So if I say, would you go get a gallon of milk, I don't mean, will you tighten your shoes? I meant what I intended. In fact, when we read, all we're doing is constructing a mental image that was intended by the author. And that's part of the problem with the Old Testament. The Old Testament was born in a world that was so foreign to us, so different from ours, that it can be very difficult for us to construct the mental image the Old Testament describes. I give this as an illustration. 10 or 15 years ago, I went to a um, flea market, and as I was just stumbling around, I stumbled into a box of photographs from the 1880s where someone had gone to the Holy Lands and taken photographs, and these weren't reprints, these were the actual photographs. I mean, there were fabulous photographs in there, and they wanted two or three, I don't remember what it was, two or three dollars a piece, and I bought one, and I came home, and that night I thought to myself, should I go spend like, I think it's probably three or four hundred dollars to get them all? I thought about it, and I decided, okay, I'm not going to tell Julie. I'm just going to go back the next day, and I'm going to buy them all. I went back the next day. They'd been sold. They were all gone. Broke my heart. Yeah, she's happy. This is the only photograph I got. It's a photograph from the 1880s, which, by the way, you can actually tell that because this is the Ottoman flag of the 1880s in Egypt. This is how the Egyptian women lived in 1880, and I want you to know it's almost not at all different from how they were living 3,000 years ago but a whole lot has changed. So what we're trying to do is get into the minds of Bronze Age people to understand why that statute mattered. We know what the principle was, but what was the statute trying to do? Once we discover what the statute is, we uncover, we uncover its spiritual precept. What's the great truth behind this law? What's the great truth behind not eating shellfish? What was the great truth behind tattoos or, or uh, sideburns and whatnot? When we figure out what the precept is, we bring it to Jesus, and Jesus will tell us what to do with it. So all truth comes to Jesus. Jesus is the author of the Old Testament, and he's also the one who fills it full of its meaning, and he teaches us what to do with the Old Testament. And then the final step, the final step for understanding any Scripture is always obedience. I just want to say this. If you don't obey it, you still don't understand it. You can read it in 26 foreign languages, but if you don't obey it, you don't understand it. I once had a professor who could literally read 26 foreign languages, many of them ancient languages, but he didn't believe in the Bible. 
He's a Bible professor. Perhaps the greatest Old Testament professor in the English language at that time. The guy, the, even the NASCAR person who can't even read knows more about that text. I practiced that. It was a big joke. I hope you laugh at it and kind of relax and know it's just a joke. But I'm just saying the average guy who obeys a text knows infinitely more about it than the man who can read it in 26 foreign languages. Y'all know that if you give me two years off, I can write a book about how to have a baby. I can talk about delivery, operate, I can, I can go the whole thing. I can write the best what to do when you're expecting book ever written by a Church of Christ preacher if you give me two years. I'll go on now. Here's the deal. No matter what I say in my book, until I've experienced it, I know nothing about it. In the same way, when you read what the Scriptures say and then you don't obey them, I guarantee you, you know nothing about it. If you don't turn the other cheek, I don't care how many languages you can read it in, you still don't know anything about it. So we learn to obey. Christians, we learn to obey the text. Now, let's just go back to this anonymous letter to Dr. Laura and just touch on some of the things this Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous raises. First, should people uh, who trim their sideburns be put to death? Kind of odd that we've been asking that question at church. <laughs> and some of you are on the edge of your seat, I can see right now. Let's just listen to the text. The text is Leviticus 19.27. Do not cut the hair at the sides of your hair. By the way, if you go to the airports, you see the, the Jews with the curly side locks, right? You've seen that. All of you have seen the Orthodox Jews. Let's go back to what the text actually says. Here's what the text actually says. Do not practice divination, that is witchcraft, by refusing to cut the sides of your head, uh, slash, slashing your bodies for the dead, or tattooing your body. What's being said here is that in the times of the Old Testament, a sign of witchcraft was to shave the side of your head, slice your body, and put tattoos on. Those were statutes for the 13th century B.C. that says, don't practice divination, don't do those things. Now, can you trim the sides of your hair now? Can you put on a, a tattoo now? Yeah, but you cannot practice witchcraft. In fact, this text teaches us what happened when the kings of Israel started to do this. They started messing around with these things. So you have Manasseh who's practiced divination and witchcraft. He goes out and by the time he's done with this heresy, he's killing babies in the Valley of Gehenna. Here's what the New Testament, here is the, here is the abiding precept. The statute is don't trim your sideburns because that's what witches do. You see the point? By the way, go online and look at odd local laws. There are, local, there are odd laws everywhere all over the world. And you look at them and you think, what in the world is this about? So for, here's, here's an example. Do you know that if your frog loses a frog jumping contest in the state of California, you cannot eat that frog? That's a real law. And you ask yourself the question, what? And here's the answer. People were entering contests somewhere back there so that they could eat their frogs. Because it was against the law to eat the frogs. So they thought, well, if I put in a contest, so they had to pass a law. You know, in the state of Tennessee, it's illegal to share your Netflix password. I'm just sharing that with you. <laughs> what I'm suggesting is behind every statute is some great principle. Behind this statute was the principle, don't practice witchcraft. That's the abiding precept. That's the truth that we still live by. Let's go to another question. In my vision, is not 2020. Is there wiggle room? Can I still approach God's altar. 
Here's the text, Leviticus 21, 18. No man who has a defect can come near if he has an eye defect. Again, it's a very insincere question. In fact, it's a, a fairly ignorant question. Because if you go back to the actual context, here's what's being said. God says to Aaron, who is the high priest, whenever you get your descendants to go offer the animals on the altar, make sure they don't have any defects. God's saying, I want somebody in my, uh, among my people to be a perfect representative of humanity. And that's the person who gets to offer the meat on the altar. So he's not suggesting you can't come to God if you wear glasses. I don't think so. Hang on. No, he's not suggesting that. What he's suggesting is that among the priests, I want the best to be the guy who brings me my sacrifices. How does that play out in the New Testament? Well, you're all priests now. And so what God asks for now is moral and ethical excellence. And by the way, you need to see this. Behind the individual statutes are always moral and ethical principles of truth. Let's look at one or two more. Can I touch a pigskin football if I wear gloves? Let's go back to the text, Leviticus 11. The pig, uh, just somebody else, by the way, I'm going to talk about kosher foods. We have a whole chapter on kosher foods uh, a little bit later in Deuteronomy. You're not to eat the meat and you're not to touch their carcasses. So some of you this afternoon are planning to be double sinners, it appears, because you're going to watch somebody touch their carcass while you're eating a pig. So, what's the point? What's the abiding truth? The abiding truth is this. God says, I want, this is the very same chapter, I want you to be different from the world. I want you to be holy. Don't be like the world is. Be holy because I'm holy, he says. In fact, I want to say this. It may well be that the eating of kosher foods is the single most important reason why Jews still have an ethnic identity. Think about it. If every time you sat down at a table, you had to ask the question, is this something I can eat or not? Every time, three times a day, in my case, five times a day. If every time you sat down at the table, you had to ask that question, it would constantly remind you, I'm not like other people. I'm different. So what do we see about this one in the New Testament? Jesus comes along and he says, look, it's not what you eat that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. And though, so Mark says, Jesus declares all foods clean. But let me tell you what he says is not clean. He says things like sexual sin, that's not clean. In fact, I just want to pause and make sure we get this. When it comes to sexuality, so I suspect, in fact, I know because I know the context of this letter that Anonymous sent. Anonymous is trying to argue that God is okay with same-sex activity. But you need to realize that when the New Testament and Jesus, Jesus specifically, when they go back to the Old Testament, they don't say, now we can loosen up the sexual laws. They do the opposite. What Jesus says is, hey, you remember the Old Testament said, don't commit adultery? I'm telling you, don't even look at a woman for the purpose of lusting. Don't even look at porn. So they don't loosen the sexual mores. They tighten them up and say, the whole point of this, the whole point of all these laws was to keep people pure, to build strong families. That's the whole point of it. So the New Testament strengthens sexual mores. Here's 1 Peter. You're still to be holy, but now it's not about shellfish and pigs. Now it's about how you live your life. And then one last one, one that's, that's admittedly difficult for us to hear. I'm thinking about selling my daughter, what's a fair price? And here's the quote, it's from Exodus 20 and verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she's not to go free as male servants do. 
There you go, all the evidence you need that the Bible is primitive and misogynistic. It hates women, right? That's all the evidence you need. You knew it did, now you know. Wait just a second. First of all, by reading this little excerpt, you're not getting the whole picture of what's happening in this text. Let me tell you what's happening. In fact, let me just start by saying something we're going to come back to. We will come back to this. In the Old Testament, slavery was not what slavery was in the South and the U.S. I've mentioned this before, but in the U.S. South, what we experienced in slavery in America was condemned by the Bible and people who practiced it, the Bible said, are worse than murderers. In the Old Testament, in a very, very dangerous, poor economy, people generally worked as tenant farmers or sharecroppers. That word is slavery in the Bible. It's the same thing as a sharecropper was in the 1920s and 30s in Rutherford County. That is, you basically attach yourself to someone who has money. They give you a section of land. You till the land, but it all belongs to him. He lets you keep half, and then he takes half. I'll show you in just a second. The Bible condemns slavery as we know it, but it doesn't condemn those sorts of arrangements. There actually been, there's been very productive arrange, economic arrangements. A lot of people would love that arrangement, even today on planet Earth. So what happens? Look at Exodus 20. I'm so poor, Julie and I are so poor, we, we can't afford food. We're in trouble. So what we can do is we can, let me go back a second. We can say to a, a, uh, someone who owns property, hey, we're going to give you our son, Jonathan, for the next five years. He's going to work for you. You give us half the food and you keep half. The Bible's okay with that. The Bible's okay with that. It doesn't recommend it, but it's okay with that. Here's what I can't do. I can't do that for my daughter. You know why? Because somebody's likely to take advantage of my daughter. And so here's what the Bible says. It says, I can't do this for my daughter because he, the master might break faith with her. He might say, hey, I'm going to, let me change, I'm trying not to put my daughter in a rough place here in this sermon. Sorry, daughter, wherever you are. But the point is you can't break faith with that girl and you have to get grant her the rights of a daughter and you cannot deprive her of anything that a wife gets. If you take a daughter like that, you got to treat her like a wife. And if you don't, she gets to go free. And you got to pay. What I want you to see in this text is it is not anti-woman, it's pro-woman. I have to treat my daughter better than I treat my son. I cannot let you take advantage of my daughter. She has to be given the right of a wife if I put her in that position. So let me just say it again. We get to the New Testament. We're taught... In 1 Timothy chapter 1, that the law, the law of God is made for sinners, he says, for ungodly, sinful people, unholy and irreligious. And he lists some of them. People who are sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality, slave traders. See, it's not pro-slavery. And then I want you to see this. Over and over again, the New Testament follows up on this great precept. You have to treat your women better. So Paul says, husband, you have to love your wives. That's contrary to what was being taught in Paul's day. Peter says to men, you've got to treat them with respect. I want you to know everywhere the Bible goes, the life of women gets better. Because this precept is from God. The precept, you've got to treat people right. I'm telling you, the Ten Commandments, they are holy and just and true. So the statutes, we're no longer bound by the statutes. Eat your shellfish, have your barbecue. But the principles behind it, they are timeless. They're grounded in the character of God. But I do want you to know, 
that when Anonymous writes the letter, he or she seems to think that the law of God is just not all that good. There's something wrong with it. You know, I went out online and I looked because I wanted to show you a picture of a Nobel laureate who was a Hittite and I couldn't find one. I wanted to show you an attorney's office who was a Moabite, but I, I couldn't find one. I wanted to show you a medical doctor or maybe a hospital that was named by the parasites. I couldn't find one. And then I read this text, Deuteronomy 4 and verse 6. If you observe this law, God says, I will make you wise and understanding. The laws of God, he says, they will make you wise and understanding. And you know what I discovered? There have been about 930 Nobel laureates since the Nobel Prize began to be offered to the opening days of the 20th century. Of the 930 Nobel laureates, one out of every five is a Jew. Jews comprise one-tenth of one percent of the world population. They have almost 200 of the 930 Nobel Prizes. And then I started thinking, would they be wise in understanding? What do all these people have in common? I mean, think about it. Are they Perizzites or Hittites or Hivites or Jebusites, Canaanites, Ammonites, Amalekites, Midianites, Philistines, Babylonians? What do these people all have in common besides the fact that some of them we don't like that much? What do they all have in common? What do they all have in common? Even when they did not follow the law of God, even when they didn't, the Lord says, I'm going to bring you praise, fame, and honor. Don't tell me the law of God's not perfect, holy, and just. It's the best law ever given. And when we read it through the eyes of our teacher and Savior, Jesus Christ, who teaches us, no, you're not bound by the statute, but the precept is eternal. He gives us, what does he say? Long life and prosperity. So that's how we're going to read the Old Testament going forward. We're going to read the Old Testament as a set of laws designed to teach us how to be holy, good, and just. We're going to obey them, and we're going to learn the greatness that God has promised to His people. Now, we want to pray for you that your heart is open to this. And so, at all of our campuses, and as well as online, if you'll go to the back here at the East Campus online, if you'll just go to the button that says prayer request, we'll have somebody there who can pray with you. Our goal, to be a people who are royal priesthood for none other than Jesus Christ himself. If we can help you do that, tell us how. Let's stand up and let's sing.